0: preparation for our study of Article 3 tonight on the Doctrine of Man, take your Bible and join me in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, which is a text that actually brings together beautifully the doctrine of Christology and the doctrine of anthropology, the doctrine of man. Where the author of Hebrews goes back to Psalm 8, which is one of the texts that we do examine tonight. And points out how what God intended for us that we lost when Adam fell is going to be restored for us in Christ. And so in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the word of God reads, For he has not put the world to to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. He's talking about the Lord there. And so God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So you say, well the world to come, the kingdom. Uh, who is going to rule over it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's let Psalm 8 help us out. But one testifies in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man. And here the phrase son of man does not mean, is not referring to the Lord Jesus. It's actually a form of Hebrew parallelism. So what is man? Uh, even the son of man. So it's just a parallel kind of idea though we know that the son of man is a messianic title and he may even be playing on that but again what is man that you're mindful of him or even the son of a man that you would even take care of him take thought of him you have made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor and you have set him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet which is exactly what god did for Adam and Eve before Genesis 3, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now uh, that's not the way it looks, Lord. Uh, we do not yet see all things put under him. Well, that's an understatement, because best I can tell, we don't live in a Genesis 1, Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 kind of a world where there's a curse and there's death and there's sin and there's sorrow and there's pain. So he says... Hold on. Verse nine. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. He was made a man and he was made for that purpose for the suffering of death. And he is crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone for verse 10. It was fitting for him. For whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. The idea is almost in bringing many sons back to glory uh, to make the capture of their salvation perfect through suffering for both. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he that is the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. And so you have there in Psalm uh, 8, quoted in Hebrews 2, the biblical balance between both our great dignity and also our fallenness and depravity. So with that, look at your notes. Man, Article 3, we've examined Article 1, the Bible. We spent three weeks in Article 2, actually four weeks, excuse me, looking at the preface to the doctrine of God and then looking specifically at God the Father, then God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. This then brings us to Article 3, and man, and in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it reads, Man, and it's using it generically, human persons, man, is the special creation of God made in his own image. Now, let's explicate that. He created them, male and female, as the crowning work, sounds like Psalm 8, doesn't it? As the crowning work of his creation. Uh, this phrase was added in, by the way. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. You say that statement, the gift of gender is a part of God's uh, good creation was not in the 1925 statement? No. Was not in the 1963 statement? No. Why is it in the year 2000 statement? Because it needs to be. Times have changed, unfortunately. And we live in a culture and in a day where there is great gender confusion. So the gift of gender, uh, there is a distinctiveness between men and women, as he just said, is part of the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, man was created. Man was, and you ought to mark the next word, innocent, innocent question. Did God make Adam and Eve perfect? That's the wrong question. Did God make Adam and Eve innocent? Yes. They had no taint of sin. But to say that God made them with perfection would be more than the Bible says. And probably would not even be in line with what the Bible says. What would be better to say is, did God make Adam and Eve very good? Yes. He made them very good. And they were made innocent with no taint of sin prior to Genesis 3. And indeed, they were also endowed as image bearers of God with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. In fact, I would have even added, not only did it bring sin into the human race, it brought sin into creation itself. Uh, Go read uh, Romans chapter 1 and then later read Romans chapter 8, especially where the Bible says creation is groaning and it cannot wait until the day that God's sons are fully redeemed because when they are fully redeemed, creation will be fully redeemed. And Just like we will be new men and women, there is coming a new heaven and also a new earth. And so by his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature as well as an environment inclined towards sin. Now, the next sentence is very, very, very important. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action. They become transgressors and are under condemnation. In other words, here's what I would say about those who are um, in this world and not yet capable of understanding moral action or perhaps because of some uh, mental uh, shortcoming or malady never reach an awareness of moral action. Uh, I in my notes have written the phrase, they are sinful but safe. They are sinful, but safe. Um, We have now four grandchildren. Uh, We have two more on the way. Uh, We have a fertile group of sons and daughter-in-laws, evidently. They are precious to me. But I can assure you that they are all four and the two on the way little sinners. Uh, They didn't come to this world innocent. Uh, They occasionally do some good things, but... They are little sinners. Now, if in God's providence, one of them would step into eternity tonight, I believe they would step into the presence of King Jesus. Because they are not yet at a place where they are morally aware of the fact that their sin is an offense to God. And so because of that, are they sinful? Yes, they have a sin nature. And they do sinful things. But they are not counted as transgressors against the known commands and law of God because they have not yet reached a stage where they understand in conscience that sin against a holy God. So in my notes, they're sinful, but they're safe. But as soon as they are capable of moral discernment and moral action, They become transgressors and are under condemnation. We in our Baptist world often talk about this thing called the age of what? Accountability. It is not a biblical phrase, but I believe it is a biblical concept, and that's what this statement is getting at. In other words, you could have said as soon as they reach the age of accountability, but the phrase capable of moral action is basically the same idea. They are then counted as transgressors, and they are under the just condemnation of God. Only the grace of God then can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. Thus, the sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, and this is added as well, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. And then what is very interesting, is I will note in a moment, there is a very short section of scriptures ...that deal with the issue of the doctrine of man or the doctrine of humanity. Uh, I'll just note them quickly and just note the key phrases in each for time's sake. Genesis 1, and 27 is absolutely foundational. Then God said, let us... You say, wait, but there's only one God. Yes, there's one God who exists in three persons. So at least by intimation... The, tri- the 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 plurality of the nature of God is here. Can I get from Genesis one, twenty-six, and twenty-seven the full blown doctrine of the Trinity? No. But is Genesis one twenty-six and twenty-seven consistent with the later revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity? Yes. So God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. Genesis two, twenty-eight. The Lord said It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Genesis 3, 15 and 16. We now go in a bad direction. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Between your seed and her seed, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I actually like the translation better. He shall crush your head. Although, to be fair, it's the same Hebrew word. But the Hebrew word can bear more than one meaning. And in light of the rest of biblical revelation, I think a better understanding is he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. Top of the next page. And this is nine, six. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, here it is again, in the image of God, he made man. We read Psalm 8, 4 through 6 just a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 2. So go to Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying that the act of conception is sinful. There's nothing in the Bible that would support that. But rather, he's saying from the moment of my conception, because my mother is a sinner and my dad is a sinner and all of my grandparents are sinners. I came to this world already with a nature and a bent toward sin. Acts 17, 26 through 29, just the first phrase. And he has made from one blood. Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Did Paul, did Jesus believe that everybody finds their origin in a man by the name of Adam and in a woman by the name of Eve? Yes, absolutely. And so though it is not as much a problem in our day and time as it was in prior generations, uh, the black man is just as much an image bearer of God as the white man. As is the yellow man, as is the brown man, and I can keep on going to the polka dotted man if there's one out there. All are equal image bearers of God. And yet, tragically, in our own denomination, there was a time where if that was believed, it wasn't very well stated or articulated in public, much to our shame. It really gets ugly when we get to Romans. Chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, there's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died. But for whom did Christ die? For the ungodly. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. But we have a positive word embedded in 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, that is the Lord Jesus, many will be made righteous. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where this, by the way, is the only text in the Bible where our three great enemies are brought together in one place. The sin nature. Uh, Satan and the world. Look at it with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to, first of all, the course of this world, this evil system that opposes God. Secondly, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that is, of course, the evil one, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves, how, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, a fallen mind, I might add, uh, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Often when I have taught systematic theology, I have raised the question, does the sin nature cause you and me to not think? No, we still think. We just think badly. We think sinfully. We think with a depraved, fallen mind. It doesn't keep us from thinking. It just causes us to think badly. It doesn't keep us from feeling. It's just our emotions many times are taken over by our lust and that which God intended as a good thing, our lust takes and turns into a bad thing. So let's make some observations about the Baptist faith and message statement on the doctrine of man. This article is surprising in the limited number of scriptural texts attached at the end. However, this may be instructive and even helpful in an age that is so anthropocentric, even in the church. In other words, we are a man-centered people. And unfortunately, even in many of our churches, we are man-centered. We talk more about man than we do God. We have more how-to sermons than we do sermons about the dignity and the majesty and the glory and the character and the attributes of God. I don't need to be told how sinful I am. I know how sinful I am. I need to know about the God in his glory who can deliver me from my sinfulness. That's what I need. And so maybe having less scriptures here is an instructive thing for our day and time. The BFNM 2000 statement on man highlights two aspects of the human condition that sets the species of creation, this species of creation, apart from all others. On the one hand, there's man's noble status. And on the other hand, there's man's ignoble state. Genesis 1 and 2 celebrates the distinctive nobility of man, but Genesis 3 records the tragic record of the latter. Thus, in the mind of Moses, the author of Genesis, the creation of Adam represents the climax of creation in six kinds of ways, or since six observations. One, Adam is created last. Two, Adam is presented as the product of divine deliberation. Let us make man in our image. Three, the description of the creation of Adam is more intensive and more extensive than any aspect of creation. Four, the account uses a special verb to describe the creation of Adam, which always involves a special creative act of God. In other words, the way in which God created Adam and Eve, he does not create anything else. Five. Once Adam is on the scene, the Lord can now pronounce the created world as not just good. But in chapter 1, verse 31, he can tell us it is extremely good. It is very good. And finally, Adam is expressly created in the image of God. Now, according to Scripture, what separates man from other creatures is his status as the image of God. Thus man has a worth and man has a dignity that is never ascribed to any of the animals. In other words, there's not a quantitative distinction between man and animals. No, 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 no. There is a qualitative distinction between the value of animals and the value of human persons. To say that we are highly evolved animals is absolutely contrary to the plain, clear teachings of the Word of God. Next paragraph then, theologians then today interpret our imageness in terms of things like human rationality, spirituality, intellectual freedom... Relationality to God, to fellow human beings, and to ourselves, and even in the sense of our triunity that reflects something of the triune nature of God because we are body, soul, and spirit. And again, I do believe there's truth to all of these perspectives, but I also believe this very strongly. Within the biblical literary context, imageness has more to do with our role, with our assignment, ...with the function played by men and women than with any type of what we would call ontological qualities of man. You say, what do you mean by ontological qualities? That we have rationality, that we have spirituality, human freedom, and intellectual freedom, and so on. In other words, the last sentence summarizes what I'm trying to say. The emphasis is on what we do, but not at the exclusion of who we are. In other words, if you were to say, Danny, when you look at the Bible... And you ask the question, what is the image of God all about? Well, it's mostly about what we do. It does not exclude who we are. But when it comes to the image of God, the primary thrust of the Bible is not so much on who we are as it is on what do we do? You say, well, what do we do? I'm glad you asked. Top of the next page. As the image of God, man is divinely authorized. To serve as God's representative. And we are charged to function as his vice regent over his good creation. Thus, according to Genesis 1 and 2, man was endowed with the needed qualities to govern creation on God's behalf as God would were he personally and physically present. In other words, brothers and sisters, we have incredible responsibility. We have an unbelievable stewardship. Uh, in the next couple of days at the seminary, we're having what is called a creation care conference. Uh, some of my friends have made fun of us and said, oh, there there goes Southeastern Brother Danny uh, trotting down the road that leads to uh, eco-feminism and uh, worship of Mother Earth. And now he's joining hands with Greenpeace and the Sierra Club and all that kind of malarkey. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm simply trying to be faithful to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where the Bible says we have a, a, a responsibility to take care of God's good creation. And actually, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves that we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians surrendered this whole idea of taking care of creation to a liberal element that will worship and divinize the created order. We, we, they turn it into an idol. We see it as a stewardship, which I would argue is very, very, very biblical. Well, in this regard, the Hebrews' view of man then differed fundamentally from that of the world in which they lived. For example, whereas in Babylon, the status of the image of divinity was reserved only for kings and, and persons like priests, the Bible democratizes the notion. You see, what do you mean by that? The children of Adam, as a race, both in general and as individual members of the race in particular, are all invested with this status. This revolutionary ideal has extremely significant anthropological and ethical implications. Let me give you one that I came across this week. I saw in The Guardian in uh, Great Britain, make sure I get my number right, one... Out of every three children diagnosed with Down syndrome is aborted in Great Britain. One out of three. Because, of course, it is deemed that their life is of less worth, less dignity, less value than. A normal per, whatever normal means, and I'd love for you to define that for me tonight because I don't think I see anyone in here that would fit in that category, but that's a, another issue for another day. No, according to the Bible, that child with Down syndrome is every bit as much an image-bearer of God as any one of us here tonight. The Bible's clear that all life, all human life is of infinite value, and all human life bears the image of God and is therefore worthy of our protection from the moment of conception to natural death. That naturally grows out as an ethical norm and an ethical proposition that is non-negotiable for those of us who allow the Bible to formulate both our theology as well as our ethics that grow out of our theology. So with that kind of then as a, as a revolutionary idea in that day, by the way, it's a revolutionary idea in our day. Tragically, we return to paganism in America. Four observations quickly are made. One, in accordance with the biblical perspective that all humankind originates in a single pair of parents, all human beings inherit equal value and nobility in the sight of God. Therefore, any view of humanity that diminishes the dignity of any member on any grounds, their gender, their race, their intelligence, their physical form, circumstances of conception is to be repudiated. Second, in accordance with the biblical perspective that Adam as a race was created male and female, any view of the human species that blurs the fundamental distinctions between male and female is to be repudiated. In other words, God made men to be men and he created women to be women. Third, in accordance with the biblical perspective that each person is in the image of God, parenthood is elevated from a merely procreative act to a co-creative act. God involving a man and a woman in the creation of new images of him Seth, you realize that when you bear children, you're joining hands with the creator in bringing this new life into this world. It is not I like the way it said here, and I picked this language up from my former colleague Dan Block. It's not merely procreative, it is co-creative. God allowing us the honor of being involved in creating new images of Himself, What an amazing thing God allows us to do in bringing children into this world. Thus, as a corollary, willful abortion represents arrogant interference in a divine creative act. And it likewise is to be repudiated. Indeed, all human life is sacred from the moment of conception to natural death. Thus, a sanctity, not a quality, a sanctity of life ethic. Is a natural theological commitment derived from the Bible's teaching on the fact that we are the image of God. Top of the next page. Fourth, in accordance with the biblical view that all human beings serve as representatives of God, any act directed at another person, whether for good or evil, is an act ultimately directed at God. Our disposition then toward God is most graphically expressed in our treatment of fellow human beings, especially those deemed socially inferior. And go read James chapter 3, and his whole argument is, when you treat your fellow humans in this way, you're actually treating God in this way. How dare you do that? How dare you? To, to, to dishonor his imagers is to dishonor him. I didn't write that. James wrote that. Matthew says that. The Proverbs say that. So it puts everything in a different context in the way that you treat your fellow human beings. Even if they're lost, uh, even if they are, are, are so utterly depraved as to live a despicable lifestyle, still remember hidden in there somewhere is the image of God. Hidden in there somewhere is someone of infinite value and worth to the Creator. But the scriptures also, now we go into the dark side, but the scriptures also present another sadder and more tragic side to the picture of humanity. If the Bible is clear in portraying humankind as uniquely endowed with special dignity, it's equally clear in emphasizing humankind's unique and utter sinfulness and depravity. And I'm going to to tease that out a little bit more in the next few pages. Because of sin which may be understood fundamentally as two key words here, I'd mark them, idolatry and rebellion. Some people say the essence of sin is pride, but I would argue that where there's pride, there's underlying it, idolatry. I think I could make that argument and get you there. So fundamentally is idolatry, rebellion against God, and because of that, we all come under his curse. Thus, in accordance with the biblical perspective of the entire human race as united in descent from Adam, the guilt of Adam's sin falls on all of us and separation and estrangement from God in whose image we are made extends to all. Again, very practically, and I was even in a a very important, very influential church for many years. And there was a person in that church that was on staff that worked primarily in the children preschool area. And she used to say on a regular basis, children are are by their very nature good. Children by their very nature are good. No, they're not. They can be one of three things. They can either have a good nature, a neutral nature, or a sinful nature. And the Bible is crystal clear. Good nature? No. Neutral nature? No. They come into this world with a sin nature. They are going to sin quickly. They're going to sin willingly. They're going to sin joyfully. They will like it. You do not have to teach children to sin. It's just who they and we are. So, it extends to all. It brings condemnation, a curse, judgment, but thanks be to God. The biblical story does not end here. Through God's Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, isn't it interesting what Colossians says, the perfect image of God. The redeemed enjoy the removal of that guilt. And I restored to fellowship and communion with their maker. And in your notes, we will not have time to get to it. But if you look at the next to last page, you'll see an outline that says you are somebody made in the image of God. And I deal with the four phases that we go through in this life. The creation of man in God's image. We are special through sacred deliberation, special design, significant dominion, and praise God in Jesus, a satisfying destiny. The character of man with God's image. We had sovereignty. We were created for reproduction, for rulership, for relationship, and to resemble our great creator in terms of intellect, in terms of morality, in terms of love, in terms of spirituality. Notice the body is not mentioned in A, B, C, or D there because having a body is not an essential component to being in the image of God. You say, why not? Because God is spirit. And so if we bear his image, we bear what he has, not what he does not have. And now he does have a body through the incarnation in the second person of the triune God. But in his eternalness, he has no body. And so having a body is a functional means whereby we live out the image, but it is not essential to the image. Just hang on to that. Some other time we'll develop it. Three, the corruption of man in God's image. We are sinful. Personally, there are consequences. Our will is damaged. Our mind is deceived. Our emotions are distorted. Relationally, there are consequences. With God, there's separation. With others, there's terrible strife. But then finally, the correction of man back into God's image. We are savable. We are redeemed in Christ. Regeneration restores the content of the image. We are restored in Christ. Sanctification reverses the corruption of the image. And so that gives you a thumb sketch of what I've been saying up to this point, and now I'll unwrap it in a few more pages, focusing primarily now on the sin problem and what that part of the of the Baptist faith and message talks about our sinful state. So, bottom of the fifth page in my notes, theological observations, a summation of biblical truth. George Carey, the former evangelical archbishop of Canterbury, said, and I quote, Modern man's difficulty with Christianity comes not so much from its teaching about God as from its assumed doctrine of man. And the fact of the matter is, naturalistic evolution doesn't like us saying that man is sinful, fallen, evil, wicked, and depraved because they believe we are the highest evolved entity on planet Earth, at least to this point. But naturalistic atheism does, in a sort of weird contradiction, devalues the significance of humans, by ascribing the origin of humans to blind, purposeless forces. <laughs> We're here by chance. Just fortunately, somehow the cosmos rolled the dice and they came up a seven. Just by accident. You and, he, you and I are here by accident. We should not be here. Nothing should be here. It is all a cosmic accident, to quote the great deceased atheist Carl Sagan. In contrast. Pantheistic worldviews elevate humans to the position of divinity with the message, you are a God. Most worldviews assume then that humanity is by nature good, or at least neutral, or even in evolution. It's getting better. Amazingly, many Christians have even bought into this undivocal view of human persons. Top of the next page, the BFNM 2000, though, in stark contrast, enunciates a clear biblical testimony concerning the origin, value, and nature of humanity. There is a biblical balance that accurately addresses both our value and our unworthiness before our great creator. So five major theological observations to move toward closing. First, the Baptist faith, the message affirms that God created humans. Thus, the issue of evolution precipitated the origin of the first edition of the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925. In fact, if you go back and say, what caused the 1925 Southern Baptist Convention to adopt a confession of faith? The answer is evolution. Evolution. And so they felt like we need to, until 1925, Southern Baptist founded in 1845, did not have a confession of faith. They they did not feel like they needed one. But now with the Scopes trial, with the advent of evolution, uh, the need was seen to be very great indeed. And so it was the Scopes monkey trial that precipitated this confession of faith. So Baptist denied humans descended from primates with the affirmation that, quote, man is the special creation of God. Indeed, God made humans a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than the angels, rather than a little higher than other animals. And that's a very important statement. Don't don't let me run past it too fast. God made us how? Higher than a monkey? No. He made us a little lower than an angel. Now, that's a big difference, boys and girls. If I think of myself as just a higher evolved monkey... I'll tend to act more like what, a monkey. But if on the other hand, I realize I'm made a little bit lower than a heavenly being, I don't look down to figure out who I am. I look up to figure out who I am. I don't aspire to go down like so many do today, but I aspire to reach higher because that's where I should be looking. The perspective is all the difference in the world. In fact, the Bible presents human beings, as we saw, as the crown or apex of God's creation. God created humans on the last creative day. God assigned to humans the task of dominion over animals. Adam's act of naming the animals demonstrates humanity's special status. And God uniquely breathed life into man, something he did not do with any of the animals. Second. The Baptist faith and message highlights the status of human beings as the image bearers of God. Again, we've hit this one very strongly, so I'm going to move down to the third one. The Baptist faith and message celebrates the gift of gender in the context of our unisex culture and confusion. Again, gender is a gift from God. The image of God, in some sense, encompasses gender. Biblical record states that God created male and female in his image. Thus, the complementary nature of male and female relationships mirrors the nature of God. Now, let me be fair. God does not have gender. God does not have gender. God is a spirit. God, in his eternal being, is neither male or female. But... When he chose to reveal himself in contradistinction to the pagan religions of the ancient world, he said, call me father, which is utterly unique. Furthermore, there now is today in heaven a human being of the male gender, and his name is Jesus. And so we do acknowledge that, though we recognize that God His eternal being is neither male nor female. He is spirit. But he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And by the way, very clear in the Bible, the Spirit is not the female consort of God the Father. Now, your uh, eco-feminist religions, radical feminism takes great delight in trying to feminize the Holy Spirit. But there is nothing, in fact, anytime a personal pronoun is attached the holy spirit in the bible he is this, i just told you he is a he the masculine pronoun is always used to stay away from any type of kind of polytheistic uh pagan nature religions that would somehow see god coming together in some type of sexual there's nothing sexual about the godhead nothing Nothing. It is a great gift that he gives to us, but there's nothing sexual ever intimated about the way the triune God relates within the Trinity. Thus, within the Trinity, the next top of the page, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in their nature or essence. The Trinity, however, does reveal a difference in role and assignment. In fact, I, when I teach theology, would say the Son willingly submits to the Father. And the spirit willingly submits to both the father and the son. And yet the spirit is not inferior to the son and the father, nor is the son inferior to the father. They're all equally God in terms of essence. But there is distinction in terms of assignment, role and function. So the son, while equal to the father, subordinates himself to the father. Male and female share equally in nature, yet male and female have different roles, and particularly in marriage. It is there that the wife submits to her husband. Fourth, the Baptist faith, the message celebrates the sacredness and the dignity of human life. Now, stay with me. This is an important paragraph, and you'll find a very fascinating statement tucked in here. The sacredness of human life entails key ethical commitments, Every individual from the womb to the tomb possesses dignity for three reasons. One, universally, every individual possesses the image of God. Two, Christ died for the human race. Three, all humans descend from a common ancestor. In the presence of Greek philosophers, Paul proclaimed, quote, from one man, literally in the text, from one blood. He has made every person or every people group on the face of the earth. In contrast, quote, the preservation of favored races in the preservation of life is the subtitle of Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species. Can I read it again? The preservation of favored races races and I don't think any of you would be hard-pressed to know that Charles Darwin thought that the favored races had the same skin color as I do and that the others including Asians as well as Africans were not the favored race in fact he even believed eventually that the less favored races would go into extinction by the way that fits an evolutionary worldview. it does that which is the, what it was, what's the synchronon of evolutionary thinking, survival of the fittest. if you ain 't fit you don 't make it, and if you are, you will preserve beyond the others and So Darwin was a racist through and through, and the fact of the matter is atheistic evolution finds it very difficult to argue against racism. If it's true, I can understand why one would be a racist. You say, well, racism's wrong. If you don't have God, make that argument for me. Why is racism wrong? Well, I just don't like it. Well, I don't like it either, but that's not a very good argument. There are a lot of things I don't like. No, apart from the biblical argument... That everyone in this room, and there are, there are folks in this room that have dark skin, and there are folks here who have light skin, and there may be some in here that are Asian or Hispanic. fact of the matter is, if we all didn't come from the same daddy and mother, or great-grandparents, uh, then there's no reason for you to say that one race is not superior to the other. But biblically, you can't say it, because we're all from the same stock, the same blood, the same man, Adam and Eve. Thus, the biblical teaching decries every form of racism, genderism, ageism as sin. Further, biblical teachings concerning the sacred dignity of humans conveys a pro-life message and a missionary mandate. Fifth, I won't devolve into further conversation. The BFM affirms that humans experience corruption because of sin. Originally created in a state of innocence, the first humans transgressed the singular prohibition of God. As a result, all humans universally possess a sinful nature and an environment inclined towards sin. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian thinker, said the Christian doctrine of sin is the one doctrine capable of empirical verification. It can be proven. And he was right. Humans sin because we are sinners. Sins are the symptoms the disease is a sin nature. It, praise God, the corrupted human nature, though it cannot heal itself, the grace of God revealed in the true image of Jesus Christ, it can do it. Finally, and I'd put a star by this because it's very important, the best way then to understand the image of God is not to look at the animals and glory in the ways we are superior to them. no. The best way to understand the image of God is to look at King Jesus and see just how far we have fallen from what God intended when he first made Adam and Eve. You want to know what God intended for you and me to look like? Look at Jesus. There's the image in all of its fullness. See how far we have fallen? Don't say, look how far we've come up. Oh, please. No, look how far we have fallen from the ideal. And you look that way, and again, praise God, you'll thank Him that we are restored by Him to that image. And in glorification, praise God, that work will be complete. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.